you have to edit this bit out because I've completely lost what I was going to say. I haven't just derailed my train of thought. I think my train has disappeared. Uh, <laughs> hold on. Do I sound different, Danny? You, uh, not to me, you don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully uh, the final result that our listeners will be enjoying, they will notice a distinct difference. So I guess this is probably a good time for us to talk a little bit about our workflow because from today onwards, it's going to be somewhat... Well, actually, the workflow is not going to be different, but the result is going to be quite different, hopefully. So we've received uh, a number of comments from friends of the show that Danny's audio quality is always stellar, whereas Alex's audio quality is always a bit questionable. Right. So I think it's time, I think it's time that we came, came clean and uh, confessed to everybody actually how this was done and how we're going to be doing it from here on. Okay. I think you might have mentioned in a previous episode, I can't remember, I think in one of the first or second episodes or something, you, you said something about shouting into your MacBook, but I can't remember if that was in the actual episode or if it was something that we sort of said in the after show and, and didn't make it in. Right. Uh, I don't make it a habit to shout into my computers, but... Up until now, basically, uh, you've been recording with what? What is it that you're recording with? It's the uh, Blue Yeti, which is, I think, the most popular microphone in, in podcast recording, from what I can gather. Right. And uh, basically, I have been literally talking into the side of my computer and then spending a good, you know, five minutes each, so each show putting my recording through some pretty complicated denoise algorithms and... Uh, de-reverberation -reverber algorithms in order to make it sound even passable. Right. Um, I mean, I think all things considered, it's not been too bad. Like, listening back to some of the previous episodes, the first couple of episodes, while you were still working out all the plugins you were going to have to do to, to get it workable, you can hear the difference in quality sort of ramp up. But right. I think you've done you know, a pretty good job considering you are literally using the inbuilt microphone Mm. on a computer i think the best of times with the previous episodes it kind of sounded like we were both sitting in the same room you talking directly into the microphone and me kind of sitting next to you off axis right right at the best of times yeah so now some new developments in my studio over here uh you may notice that not only has my voice quality improved but also the amount of reverberation has hopefully decreased because uh, i have all of my acoustic panels up now very good. And I will uh, tell you a little bit about those later on in the show because that's definitely something uh, I want to tell everybody about. But um, back on topic, the microphone. So a very, very good friend of mine in the United States actually was no longer using this particular microphone and he very kindly sent it to me to use on the show. Mm. And it is a, a Heil PR30. Heil is an American microphone manufacturer who make... Uh, some very high-end, I wouldn't say boutique-y, but just uh, very pro-level. No, that's not the right word, is it? I guess uh, expensive. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> very expensive microphones. <laughs> that I think that's probably the, the, you know, amateurs can use uh, expensive microphones too, can't they? I, I think so. I think that's fair. I definitely count as a microphone amateur, as I shall prove shortly. Uh, anyway, um, he was no longer using his PR30, so he sent it to me. That's very kind of him. Yes, the Heil PR30, if you look, if you Google it, you will find that it is the most popular microphone for miking guitar amps. Oh. So there you go. Okay. That's why I sound like a rock god now. <laughs> Don't I? 
No, no. Well, so I can't tell. So you're not you're not using this microphone. Like you've got a bit of a complicated setup where you're recording with one thing and facetiming to me with another right because you sound the same as normal to me yeah that's right so if, if you haven't got that set up then i think you should contact your friend about the quality of this microphone <laughs> yeah so basically uh the way it usually works is i have my mac on the side which is doing a facetime audio call with danny and i used to record on the mac at the same time but now i'm recording into my work pc and uh quite nervous about that you were kind of laughing at me last week when I said, okay, next week, next show will be the first one that I'm recording on the PC. Right. And I was kind of worried about the PC crashing halfway through the recording because these become, you know, I mean, we're talking a good, what, 500 megabyte recording for an hour and a half or so that we talk. Right. Yeah. Well, recently it's it's often been two hours before we start cutting it down. But right. I'm sure, I mean, it's a new computer, right? It hasn't had time to get all old and crusty like Windows PCs do. Right. So I think it'll be okay. I have faith in the ability of your few weeks old computer to record a two hour conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's hope it doesn't crash halfway through or we're going to have some very messy editing. So yes. back to the workflow. Basically, I call you on my Mac and we talk as just a regular audio call yep. and we record our parts individually. The final files that I end up giving you is a, an edited version of your recording of the conversation and an edited version of my recording of the conversation. Right. And then you splice and dice and get it all, make sure that the ums and the ahs are cleanly edited out. Well, as, as far as I can, yep. And uh, then basically you send back to me the stems of that, after which I put it through a increasingly simple signal chain of plugins, which is nice. Mm. And uh, then we have the final mastered result. Very exciting. So I have to um, tell you a little story about this microphone. And this will qualify what I said before about amateurs being able to use expensive microphones because... Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Uh, as as you know, I uh, make audio for video games. I do sound effects and music production. However, I actually am more of a synthesizer guy than I am a recording guy. Right. And... I know very, very little about microphones. I see. And when this microphone arrived, I was excited to try it out. But it's actually the very first microphone I've ever owned. First, like proper microphone you've ever owned. No, first, well, I guess if you if you discount the microphone on the iPhone earphones that you get. Right, right. And you discount the microphone that's built into the Mac, then no, it's actually the very first microphone. Oh, the first one. You've, you've never had an SM57 or, or anything like that? Nope. Wow. Nope, never. Oh. Yeah, so I was excited to try it out. Plugged it in. Now, bear in mind, this microphone has come in a, pa in a box in a package from California. Right. And uh, I found that it was like my voice was going through a high-pass filter about 2000 hertz and above you met yeah you, you mentioned that you were worried that that something had gone wrong with it in transit or something yeah and uh i was really concerned i had no idea what to do i mean i, I don't know anything about how microphones work i mean i understand the basic you know the the rudiments of the electronics but there's no way i could you know fix it or anything and i tried a different interface and i tried on the mac and i tried on the pc and i tried a different cable mm. and it was just not working so Towards the end of it all, I just thought, well, what do I have to lose? So I just do what any amateur would do with a broken microphone and uh, just gave it a good solid whack under my under my hand, really. <laughs> and it worked. 
that's that's how I fixed my microphone. And it worked. It actually worked. <laughs> yes, it actually worked. So oh, okay. Good. That's how an amateur uses an expensive microphone. If it doesn't work, you just bang it on your head just or whack it. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a good Oh well that that fills me with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's uh, it's working. I then came across another challenge, and that was that uh, microphone stands, for those who don't know, and I certainly did not know, mm. actually have two varieties of mounting thread. By thread, I mean the the mounting screw on the top. Right, right. The American size is quite large. I guess it's about what one and a half centimeters, right. which would be. I don't know, like seven tons and four feet and nine Fahrenheit's in the uh, imperial system. Two and a half centimeters and an inch. So one and a half centimeters is it's like just over half an it's inch. It's the size of the king's kidney bean on a Wednesday or something. Right, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Let's move on, shall we? Yeah, the American threads are larger and the European threads, where I bought my microphone stand from Germany, from an online store in Germany. Right. And uh, it comes with a European thread, which is very narrow, which is kind of like about, uh, what would it be, about eight millimeters. Mm. So I had to take a special visit to the music store downtown where they kind of laughed at me and said, well, of course, if you've got an American microphone, you need an adapter to use it on a European stand, you idiot. Of course. Course. Well, they didn't say it exactly like that, but that's kind of how I felt. Right. You know, you learn, you learn every day. Life is a learning experience. Right, exactly. So you've got, I've, you've sent me a picture here, and I can see very, very attractive red and black color scheme, which is obviously the most important thing in a microphone. That's right, the color scheme. And uh, <laughs> and you've got it attached. You haven't got this on a shock mount, have you? No. So the this microphone is. Uh, extremely well designed mm. it has inside the capsule it's i don't know i don't really get it but there's there's something about it that you don't actually need to have it on a shock mount all right okay you might also notice that it doesn't have any kind of windshield like a, a popper stopper oh yeah. yeah all of that is actually built in oh very nice well that makes things easier yeah that's right and uh it looks fantastic i mean it's all black and the top end of the microphone grill is this nice red color. And that's actually done intentionally to make sure there is no misunderstanding that this is a forward firing microphone. Oh, I see. Is it so I'm showing my ignorance about microphones, but is this a, a dynamic rather than a condenser microphone? Then? It is indeed a dynamic microphone, but it has characteristics of a condenser microphone. Oh, okay. Meaning that it can take a very being a dynamic microphone this is again my very limited understanding so all of the other podcasters and uh, audio producers out there are cringing right now but i'm going to sally forth regardless very good dynamic microphones take a very very wide very large dynamic range meaning mm. you can put very very quiet sounds and extremely loud sounds with very sharp transients into them and they will handle them with ease Right. On the other hand, condenser microphones are far more accurate, I guess. I don't know. Oh, but okay. much more delicate at the same time and often require external power via 48-volt phantom power, which is a feature of most audio interfaces and mic preamps. Right. This one doesn't require any power. So I think I should probably stop talking about microphones now because this is very embarrassing. Okay, good. Yeah, the... the <laughs> Other difference that I've heard bandied around in the past is that dynamic microphones have a tendency to be more 
directional. So you need better mic technique if you're using a dynamic microphone. Condenser microphones are better at picking out not surrounding noise. Well, they do. The, the problem is they pick up surrounding noise, but they can also still pick up your voice or whatever they're recording if you're a little way away or if you're not quite directly facing into the microphone, I right. think is a right. property that I've heard of them. So Yeah, so for uh, this kind of application where I'm sitting in a studio room with my voice bouncing, well, not bouncing too much anymore around the walls, a dynamic microphone is actually a very good choice. Right. Well, actually, in this environment that I have now, a condenser microphone would probably be a better choice because the, the room is very quiet now. But uh, We should swap because I've got a condenser microphone and a very echoey room. But you somehow seem to manage with my recordings. Yeah, so I um, have taken delivery of these acoustic panels and uh, wow, it was like working in a bathroom before and now it's like I'm working in a, in a very finely tuned movie cinema. <laughs> like it's really, really hard to believe that these are the same speakers. They just sound so much better. Oh, good. Uh, it's like, you know, very deep, deep lows and punchy, punchy bottom end and a very detailed crisp mid-range and a smooth high end. And it just, just sounds absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, basically the, the issue is with small rooms like this is, is bass control because bass wavelengths are very, very big. And bass frequencies tend to build up in corners. Mm. I have no idea why that would be, but it's the way it is. And uh, you can actually try this out for yourself if you put on a bass-heavy track on your sound system and go and put your head in the corner of your room. You will probably find that it sounds much more bassy mm. in the corners that compared to in the middle where you're likely to be listening from. Interesting. So, in a sense, the corners of the room were kind of sucking away the bass from the speakers, and to compound that, a lot of the high end and the mid range is bouncing off the walls in various places, mm. meaning that the sound that I'm actually hearing is the sound of the room and not the sound of the speakers. Right, yeah. Yeah, so now on the other hand, it, it's really, really apparent that I am listening to the speakers, like the, the stereo field in front of you. And we, I think we've all had the experience of sitting in front of a, an accurately set up pair of stereo speakers where if you close your eyes, it, it really, really sounds like a, a 3D well, actually, two-dimensional plane in front of you. Right. In this case, uh, it sounds remarkably good. You know, you really close your eyes and you, you're standing in front of the sound. It's it's quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as an added bonus for doing this kind of recording work, my voice doesn't bounce off walls so much anymore, so hopefully the result here is good too. Mm, very good. Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing the actual recording when you when we finish recording it and you send me the, uh, the master over to mix mm. because... Uh, yeah, like we said, I can't hear it yet, so I'll, it'll be a surprise to me as well as to all the listeners. Speaking of listeners... Yeah. <laughs> you like your segues, don't you? Yes, I do. And I'm good at speaking. them. You, you must admit. <laughs> uh, speaking of listeners, we've we've got some follow-up. We've got I've got quite a lot of bitty things, both follow-up and topics. I've got a few sort of small things, which I think I'm just going to bring up and... If they go somewhere, we'll run with it. And if they don't, we'll cut it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So we did get we did get some nice follow-up from last week. We got a couple more international mentions on the Reddit. Our Icelandic listener popped on again and noted that the day we released our podcast episode a couple of weeks ago, there were celebrations on the streets of Iceland. I mean, I, I, would, I would expect no less, really. It's good to hear that they are sort of taking seriously their position 
second only to Sweden mm. in in podcast listenership. So that's great. There was also a football game going on that night. Apparently, I'm not sure why they mentioned that, but no, I think it's uh, just coincidental. Yes. Anyway. Total coincidence, but uh, good to hear there's celebrations in Iceland. Good to hear they're actually doing very well. This last couple of weeks, Iceland has raced ahead of Sweden. Really? So Iceland is actually doing better than Sweden. Now. Well. I won't go into the whole, all the statistics, but but yes, Iceland, on your game. Well done. We also got somebody from France yep. who popped on the Reddit and just wanted to uh, represent France and say they were listening. So it was great to hear from them. Yes. By the way, did you see the thing I tweeted about a few days ago about English biscuits in France? I, did you see that? I didn't actually. I've been a, a little uh, under the pump with work recently. So no, I didn't. What, what was that about? This is totally, this is not a big topic or anything. But a friend of mine tweeted this and I thought it was brilliant. The tagline for McVitie's Biscuit. Are you familiar with McVitie's Biscuits? Yes. A very famous brand of biscuits in England. Biscuits for our American listeners are what you would call cookies. Mm. And there's a very famous brand of biscuits in the UK called McVitie's. And the tagline for this brand in France is, they're English, but they're good. Right. <laughs> I mean, got the, it's written on the packet and they've even got an advert which they ran in France it looked like quite an old advert I'm not sure if it's from the 90s or the early 2000s or what but it's got it's the entire advert is in English which you can imagine you couldn't do imagine doing an entire advert for a French product in England or America where the whole advert is in French and you can just kind of assume that everyone will understand right but they they had that so this entire advert is in English and it's pointing out all the sort of paradoxes about England mm. like it's an island but you get there by train and <laughs> England invented football but their team's captain is the national team's captain is Italian <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and England has really bad weather all the time right. but its girls go out wearing hardly anything right and things like that lots of little sort of cliched contradictions in English society <laughs> and then mm. at the very end it just ends with and we can't cook but we make very good biscuits. <laughs> See, now this, I, I, I need to, uh, I, uh, before we continue with the follow-up, I think we need to come to the defence of English cuisine here for a moment because... Clear England's name. Uh, I mean, let's, let's face it. In the 80s and possibly the 90s, England definitely did not have, from my memory, did not have the best reputation for its cuisine. And I quote the 80s and the 90s simply because that was the age when I kind of took interest in this kind of thing. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it still doesn't have a good reputation now. You're talking well, about its reputation. Well, the, that's... The fact that this tagline exists is sort of right. testament to that. I, th I think that that's, that's the bit that I'm, I'm wanting to challenge here because every opportunity that I've had to eat out at a restaurant in the United Kingdom mm. has been... Very, very delicious. Yes. And I cannot say the same about America. No. I, I'm, I'm going to say it. <laughs> I, I cannot say the same about America. You know, I, you do, I mean, there's a whole range. There's a whole diverse selection of high quality and not so high quality eating establishments in the United States. But uh, with, if you're looking at a sort of a, an average of food quality, ingredients, cooking preparation, and just general enjoyment of the experience of going to a restaurant right on average i am going to say that the united kingdom comes before the united states i, I think that uh 
it's a little unfair now to criticize England for its food. I mean, let's let's go through. We've got uh, you know the standard fish and chips and that kind of stuff. Yep, your, your English junk food is pretty good, pretty tasty as far as junk food goes. Exactly on the low end, starting on the low end of the scale. I mean, uh, right. You know, there's a lot of fish and chip shops that, in order to stay relevant today, they they really put a lot of pride and a lot of um, effort into making you know extremely good fish and chips. Right, and moving up the scale to you know more. Uh, expensive establishments or, you know, business lunch eateries and places like that. Mm. I just couldn't, you know, I was just never really disappointed on each occasion that I've eaten in, in the UK. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I take every opportunity to try and stand up for English cooking. I am obviously in a biased position because I'm English. Mm. But I think there's a lot of good food in England. And uh, gastro pubs is another thing that these right. days most pubs you go to right. have to have, you know, a pretty good set of meal choices in order to compete. Mm. And so it used to be that a pub meal was like some grubby scampi and some soggy chips. But right. those days are over, I think, and it's it's kind of, yeah, it's it's got a lot better. Do you think it might have something to do with the fact that there are well, no, not. I was going to say, you know, that there are few sort of quintessentially internationally famous British dishes, but that's not really true either, is it? Uh, that, well, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. There are quite a few. None of them are particularly fancy. Mm. Like, I think we are, we are most famous for our kind of good, solid food. Like, right pies we make very good pies fish and chips you also said english breakfast i think is fairly internationally well known right not for everyone some people think the idea of eating that much sort of grease and fat first thing in the morning is disgusting but it's well known Mm. and i disagree with them (laughs) what else bangers and mash yep it's a very simple filling food Mm. All of which are improved. I think everything I said, with the possible exception of breakfast, is elevated by the quality of the gravy right. that it is served with. So, yeah, I think that there is there are well-known dishes. And I think there's a few ways you can talk about food and the quality of food in a country. Because we compare a lot. Obviously, we've moved to a new country relatively recently, moving to the Bay Area in California a year ago Mm. and we've come from Japan where the food is also extremely good yeah and so we've you know it's been a point of comparison and I think there's a few different axes on which you can compare because you can say for affordable stuff for like your everyday going out for a quick meal kind of stuff if you're going to pay between 10 and 20 dollars what sort of quality are you likely to get and on average, you know, what sort of quality bar can you expect? Then there's another category of if you go all out and you pay a lot of money, hmm. what sort of quality of food is that? And that's that can be quite a different thing, right? right? You can have a place where the general average level of food, if you're not willing to pay that much money, is fairly low. But if you really fork out, you can get something really special. I think Japan has always done very good on both of those scales because mm. Japan has extremely good, very affordable food. You know, we would eat out 
most lunch times. Right. And we would rarely spend more than about, you know, if we spent more than $10, we were kind of pushing the boat out. Yeah. And we would eat really well. Yeah. And, and really good quality food. So Japan does exceptionally well. France and Italy both pride themselves on the quality of their food. And I think that's the, you know, you were comparing the UK against America, but the comparison that is being made in that McVitie's advert is between France and England. And France has always kind of looked down on England in terms of food a little bit because France is extremely proud of its food and England has had this bad reputation. I think, I guess we can conclude though that the sort of famous dishes the amount of famous famous dishes doesn't necessarily indicate the general international reputation of a country's cuisine because if you look at Sweden and Australia Sweden has really what i guess two <laughs> all of two famous dishes i guess if you were to, if you were to ask somebody you know what is swedish food could you give me an example of swedish food right i guess you would probably get you know meatballs and meatballs. mashed potato and maybe yeah. like a cinnamon bun, perhaps. Oh, is that Swedish? Okay, well, I guess there's only one. <laughs> it's basically yeah, meatballs and mashed potato then, isn't it? Well, there's a funny thing. Like we call, not a cinnamon bun, but we've got a thing in the UK which we call a Danish pastry. Right. But once when I was in Oxford and I was in a cake shop, somebody ran in very flustered and said, I'm from Denmark. And we don't call them Danish pastries. We call them Belgian pastries. <laughs> it's a and then left. It's a <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, very odd moment. I wonder if that person just sort of runs around to all the bakeries that, 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 that they can find. It and just I've got something to clear up about my country's pastries. <laughs> yeah, maybe there might be more efficient ways to do that instead of, uh, you know, do, doing a a door-to-door from every bakery and running in there and well you know this is before the days of twitter so you've got to do something (laughs) right but i mean uh, australia is another case where you know when you ask somebody from a different country not australia you know what give me an example of an australian like australian cuisine i think within australia well obviously you've got vegemite but that's hardly really cuisine that's that's more like right, a, that's just a thing. It's more like you know, more like a kind of construction material, really. <laughs> it's like a, <laughs> it's actually yeast extract. Yes, and uh, many people are curious what Vegemite tastes like. It's uh, it's it's actually quite nice. It's a very dark flavor, extremely salty. So you don't want to have too much of it unless unless you're trying to trick a tourist into trying Vegemite for the first time, like the Japanese do with their wasabi. Right. You know, you, you don't really want to have too much of it. But just just a sort of a thin layer on top of some toast with some butter or something is, is actually quite nice. Have you ever had Marmite? Marmite. is That's like the, the, the poor man's version of Vegemite, isn't it? No, it's the rich man's version of Vegemite. Vegemite is the poor man's version of Marmite. I see. That's, that's, the, that's <laughs> the way it is, is it? <laughs> yeah. Ve- Vegemite, it's, that was a very good description. But for English people, it's easier to sum up as just crap Marmite. I that's- see. <laughs> Shots fired, Danny. Shots fired. Mar- so the, the biggest difference between Vegemite and Marmite is that if you've never have you never seen Marmite, you don't you don't know what it looks like or or anything. Does it look like sort of pain, death, and suffering? And and uh... they're very similar. Vegemite and Marmite look very uh, taste and look very similar. They're almost the same thing, right? They're both a yeast extract, right? But Vegemite is more like i guess a bit more like butter like you scrape it onto your knife and then you can scrape it onto the toast it's like a paste like that 
it's like a paste, right? Marmite is gloopy. Ah. So if you were to, it, it's more like the consistency of honey. I see. So if you were to put some on your knife and lift the knife up above the jar, it would sort of dribble slowly down back into the jar. Right. So it's a very different consistency to Vegemite, but the, the actual flavor is very similar. Right. And all the same things apply there. You don't want to put too much of it on toast. I used to, I love Marmite and Bovril as well growing up. Do you, right. Are you familiar with Bovril? No, I'm, I, I know what it, I have heard the title, but I actually don't know what it is. I, I actually do not. Bovril is really weird. Isn't it a meat drink? Yeah, the, the bov in Bovril is short for bovine. It's, made, it's a cow-based drink. It's really odd. <laughs> but it's got like exactly the same consistency and color of Marmite. And it's in the same style of jar. So it looks mm. just like Marmite. Right. But it's made of beef instead of yeast. Amazing. And you're supposed to use it to make a drink, right? So you pull out like a teaspoon of it and mix it with boiling water. Right. And you get this like drink that just tastes like gravy, basically. It's basically just like drinking gravy. I see. But I used to have it spread on toast like Marmite. I see. I don't know if you're supposed to do that. I think that's maybe an odd thing to do. I don't know if that's that actually that common. Mm. But I used to say, just think it was more or less the same thing as Marmite, which I haven't had it in so long now that I couldn't tell you whether it tastes at all similar or not. But they're both black and gloopy, and I had them both on toast. And when I went to hospital in Spain when I was very young, I really liked Bovril, and I had to stay in the hospital overnight. And... You're not supposed to eat because I'd had like anesthetic. So I wasn't supposed to eat for like 24 hours afterwards or something. But I woke up in the middle of the night really hungry. And the nurse was like really kind and everything. And so she was like, all right, well, I guess if it's something small, I can get you something. What do you want? And I was like, I want Bovril on toast. (laughs) (laughs) And this nurse didn't really know about Bovril, I guess. Right. So she just spread it on the toast like really thick. Right. In the middle of the night, when I'm not supposed to be eating because I've had anaesthetic, <laughs> and I was so sick. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good sick, wasn't it? It was a happy sick. It was well. It's it stuck in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of drinks, you know, here in um, I should probably just finish what I was saying before that you know Australia, other than Vegemite, I guess you've got you know Australian mince pies. You know, when you actually go to Australia, the the, the most delicious things are all food from basically the immigrant population. Well, Australia is all, right. is all immigrant population. Other right. Than the, uh, but it's face, I mean, that's similar here as well, right? In, in certainly in California and, and around the, the Bay Area. Right. The, so consequently, depending on the city, uh, in Adelaide, Greek food and Vietnamese food and Cantonese food and Italian food, yeah. these four are... Just top class. I mean, absolutely delicious. Cooked by, uh, you know, experienced people with extremely fresh ingredients. Just amazing. So, you know, that that you wouldn't really count that as Australian cuisine. Although you do have, you know, restaurants who have set up. They call it fusion food, where you they take these uh, foreign influences and you know mix them up a little bit, but make them with kangaroo. Hmm. I mean, I don't. I guess. Uh, well, actually, kangaroo. Uh, my family, you know, we have kangaroo regularly, once a week or so. Uh-huh. Sounds a bit funny. People from other countries kind of raise an eyebrow when you say that you eat kangaroo for dinner, but uh, it's actually quite nice. Yeah, I've had a kangaroo burger or two in my time. It was all right. Mm. So I wanted to just say that here in Sweden, there are some pretty amazing 
foods that you can get that I'd never actually had before. I know that they're not limited to Sweden, but they're they're very, very easily available here. Right. One of those is oat milk. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried oat milk? Is that what Ovaltine is? I don't know exactly what Ovaltine is, so I can't... I know the... It's again, a hot drink in the UK. Yeah. It's a brand name. But. Oat milk is basically... Well, it's just as it sounds. It's milk made from oats and... Uh, it's it's very very delicious. It it tastes it's it's basically like a a creamy kind of liquid, a little bit sweet because it's got a bit of sugar in it. I think mm. with a nice sort of hint of oat flavor in it, and it's very very tasty. And it's very easily available here. You can also get almond milk. Oh yeah, yeah, which is great. My wife has that every morning. Oh really? The honey in Sweden is amazing. There are various types of honey that you can get here. But the one that really surprised me that I'd never had before is a kind of honey, I think they call it garden honey. And it's not so much like a liquid, it's more like a paste. So when you take you know, take some out on your knife, it actually doesn't run at all. Right, right. Swedish people tend to only use that in their tea. Oh, okay. They don't actually, you know, I, I like to spread it onto bread, but uh, most Swedish right. people kind of think, well, really? You spread it onto bread? You know, you're supposed to take a spoonful and put it in your hot tea and leave it there. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's just, just – and, of course, cheese and all the northern European things that you would you would expect right. cheese. And, of course, the right. bread, the quality and the range of breads is is uh, on a different level, really. Incidentally, I just looked up Ovaltine, and Ovaltine is – a brand of milk flavoring product made with malt extract. So it's not oat milk, oh, okay. it's malt. Similar category, but slightly different. I, I think in, in Australia, that's called malted milk. Right. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That does make sense. Yes. There's a biscuit called that as well. Malted milk. And we're all the way back to biscuits. All the way back to biscuits. Perfect. I think we should get on with some more follow-up. This I, is Okay. <laughs> yes. Last episode, we talked about Facebook's business model. Yeah. And we got uh, quite a bit of feedback from that. It was quite interesting. Mm. I thought that whole discussion was really interesting. I'm still, I'm still super intrigued to see if somebody can find a, a good way to explain it. But I had a couple more people who, who chimed in. friend of the show, Ben, said that he thinks that Facebook actually operates more like a bank, mm. which is a, an, interesting, an interesting sort of view. I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but when he explained it, I can sort of see where he's coming from. Mm. So the the simple explanation you have of a bank, like when, you know, banks are more complicated these days, but the, the simple explanation I remember being given when I was like 10 or whatever, is that the way a bank works is that you put your money in there. They kind of keep it safe in theory, but they don't just leave it there. They actually use that money to do things with it, right? To buy stocks and things like that. They invest that money. Right. And through their investments, that money grows and then you see some of that growth return to you in the form of interest. And that is how interest in banks works. And then the, the difference between the interest you get and the rest of the money is what the bank makes right. off having your money in the bank, right? And that was kind of the idea that Ben was coming from, where you, you put your data into Facebook in a way. And then they use that data in a variety of ways right? by selling it directly to people or by using it to train neural networks and things like that. And they kind of invest that data in a way that increases its value. Mm. 
And then instead of giving you interest, which wouldn't make sense, like they just give you more information about yourself or something. Right. So you don't get interest, but what you get is the use of the service, right? That's that's really fascinating because a, a fundamental, I wouldn't say it's a, it's definitely not a flaw, but a fundamental difference with that idea is that data and currency are different. You know, you don't inherently have currency. It comes from somewhere. Right. You inherit it or you work for it or, you know, for, for many of the sources that we, we get currency. Right. It's an exchange of something and you've exchanged something else to get that currency and then you take that currency and then again you exchange it for something else and that's the way that, you know, currency works in the modern world. Right. Whereas data, arguably, you could say it's less like something that you have exchanged to get. It's more like inherent personal details about yourself. I guess if you could count, you know, your interests and the things you click on and the things that pique your interest and, and you know, set up flags of curiosity in your mind. Right. Those things are data. And you didn't exchange anything to get them you create them as you're going through the service. So not meaning to, you know, reopen the same conversation that we had last week, but uh, yeah, that's uh, Ben's idea is, is very fascinating. Yeah, it's just another view. I mean, I, I'm not sure there is a correct notion here. They're just all interesting ways to model this idea. And I think it's very interesting. I think it's, it's nice to explore other ways to look at this hmm. Facebook, and I'm using Facebook as a shortcut for all of these sorts of online services that gather your data and make their money from uh, selling it or some derivative of it to advertisers. But it's interesting to see all these different models and to compare them. Ben's main problem with Temer's notion of how Facebook works is what we talked about last time, which is that he doesn't think you can consider it barter when the users engaging in this barter are themselves not really aware of it and don't consider it to be part of themselves. Did you, um, on our Reddit, which, by the way, on Reddit, our subreddit is uh, Station 13, in case you were wondering. R slash Station 13, yep, link in the show notes. Did you see the um, the really long and extremely fascinating post from Chuck YC 17? Chuck, Chuck YC, I think it might be Chucky C 17. Chuck YC 17, Chucky, <laughs> my apologies, Chuck. Chucky? That's actually, that's so, I mentioned a podcast last episode, which I called A-Town FM. The actual name of that podcast is A-Town, mm. so a little correction there. And Chucky C17 is Charlie, who is one of the co-hosts of that podcast. So it was nice of him to drop by. And yes, I did see his post. That was very interesting, because he was talking about what you were talking about last episode, which I actually thought was not a fair, last episode, when you were talking about comparing a brick and mortar shop mm. to an online store like Facebook and or not store but an online service like Facebook and saying well if a brick and mortar shop had the same sort of notion of you've got to sign an agreement to go in and and all of that would it be as popular this is such a fascinating post do you think I should just read it because it, it really is is very interesting what do you think sure go ahead yeah so he writes it's funny you use the example of a physical store having a terms of service book at the entrance because many stores actually do a similar thing to Facebook and Google. When you're in a retail business's building, there are all sorts of ways they're collecting data on you. It used to be guys in the rafters manually watching people and tracking customer movement through the store, but it's increasingly more sophisticated. I worked with a company once that helped companies 
build systems that would use Wi-Fi to track customer phones as they moved around the store. If your phone's Wi-Fi is on, it scans for available Wi-Fi periodically. Routers throughout the store pick up the signal strength, and if there are three in the range, you can triangulate an exact position within the store. This essentially lets them create real-time heat maps of customers moving through their store, and if you download their loyalty app, they can ca attach more metadata to that location data. I feel like that muddies up the idea that you're the product for a free service, because even in a traditional transactional environment, you might still be the product in that sense. That's, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm... I was aware that this sort of thing sometimes happens and I'm very suspicious of loyalty card apps because I, but I still had a notion of the thing that I was suspicious of about loyalty card apps is that they are tracking my purchases, right? That I'm essentially giving them a sort of purchase history, which they right. can tag to a single person. But I hadn't stopped to consider that, oh yeah, actually, if you're going to have Wi-Fi all around a large-ish shop, then you could easily use these routers to triangulate the position of every customer carrying a phone, which is, let's face it, every customer these days. Right. And really do some quite detailed tracking on exactly how your shop layout works and, and like he says, make a, a heat map, mm. which, I, I mean, there's two two places you can start. As, as someone who likes data and has worked with systems, that sounds great. If I was laying out the shop, mm. I'd love to have a heat map to see how well a particular layout has worked, right? I've done that in level design where we've right. you know, where we've made a game and we've tracked everywhere that people die and how fast people are going at different points in the level and, and things like that. You can generate heat maps and you can see if you get this just big red splodge, you know, oh, a hell of a lot of people are dying at this point in the level and if that's not what you intended, then you know that's something you need to fix. Right. So it's a very good technique. But as a person who walks into shops sometimes, it's a little <laughs> bit scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, Wi-Fi in general and also mobile connectivity. For the longest time, actually, you might remember... You know, when we used to catch the train together to Station 13, hence the name yes, of this indeed. podcast, Yes, um, I did not actually have a smartphone. Do you remember? I do remember. You only had an iPod, which was you re were reliant on Wi-Fi every time you wanted to do anything on the interwebs. That's right. And so uh, using my iPod outside, I, outside of my own home or outside of the office, was something that I never really did simply because... Yeah, I, I didn't have a smartphone, right? And I, I used, uh, you know, the Apple iPod, which is basically exactly the same as the iPhone, except without the phone features. Right, the iPod Touch. Sorry, to yes, device. that's right, the iPod yeah. Touch. So, coming to Sweden was actually the first time that I got a proper iPhone. Right. And obviously, you know, the convenience is amazing. You know, it's great. You basically, it's all in the pocket. It's all in your hand, so to speak. You know, it's all it's all right there. And yep. There are so many times when I find it incredibly convenient and um, useful. And, you know, like many things, many certain types of technology, you wonder how you got by without it. Yeah. But, yeah, that the issue of location data and the issue of Wi-Fi uh, and mobile network security is uh, something that sometimes I wonder about, you know, especially... Um, 
now that in today's lifestyle we all come to rely on our mobile devices so much and right. it's it's sort of a given that in uh, a lot of uh, first world countries everybody has one or at least every adult does you know you kind of imagine that uh, yeah. it, it seems like we're walking on thin ice I guess as far as our you know we we rely on these devices so much and Obviously, you know, there are the companies who provide us with these devices and their operating systems have extremely, you know, they have the, you know, the top class, world class engineers working on the security functions of these things every day. So I, I don't worry about it too much, but just the amount of reliance that we have on these devices, the things that they can do and, you know, the kind of information about us that they transmit, it's food for thought, really, isn't it? Or, or that they hold. I mean, they they have they are the most personal device and personally revealing device that mankind has ever produced. Really, they hold logs of everything you've done. They hold your communications with all your closest associates. They hold your photos, mm. all of your photos. They hold tracking of everywhere you've been. There's, you you know you you can see the the sort of route you've taken right so they they do hold a lot of data about yeah. you to be fair this wi-fi issue that charlie mentions would have affected you with your ipod touch because that had wi-fi so that is not a, an iphone specific issue that was already the case for you when you were carrying an ipod touch around yeah that's true did you uh read about that um uh, wi-fi security exploit yeah yeah, the crack exploit, the WPA two thing. Yeah, have you have you read much about it? No, I don't. I I kind of glanced over it, but I didn't really understand it. So you're going to have to explain it to me. It is at the same time the sort of biggest, scariest security breach in a long time, and also not something that I think the average person needs to worry about too much. Right. I think. I have yet to read any mainstream reporting on it. So I don't know, because these things often get sort of misunderstood and blown out of proportion by newspapers and mainstream non-technology related outlets. Right. So I'm kind of expecting some some bad reporting to happen. Like the, the Guardian's reporting on WhatsApp last year was just atrocious. But mm. anyway, I won't go into that in any more detail, but I might put a couple of links to some bad articles in the show notes if anybody wants to make themselves angry. <laughs> With this one, I'm still working out. I'm, I've, we've talked about security a few times and I feel like I have to reiterate every time that I am by no means an expert in security. I'm very much a layman and I'm just talking about my own understanding. I may be making mistakes, but this is what I understand about the problem. WPA2 is a way that devices connect to Wi-Fi and establish an initial connection with Wi-Fi. Right. With the router in your house or your company or whatever. We used to use a thing called WEP, W-E-P. Right. And that was proven to be cryptographically insecure, so everyone moved over to WPA and then WPA2. A problem has been found in the WPA2 protocol itself. Not any particular implementation, but the actual specification of the way it should be implemented. And this allows you to repeat packets 
uh, repeat packets means if if a device has sent a packet over the network before, you can make it send that same thing again. And by making it repeat packets, I think you can sort of, that gives you more shots at decrypting things, something. My initial understanding was that you could establish yourself in a in a man-in-the-middle position between the device, like your iPhone or your computer or whatever, right. and the router, and sort of modify packets that are being sent to your device. I'm not 100% sure that that understanding is correct. So I may be making a mistake here. Mm. But the danger of being able to do that, of course, is that you can send malware, you can inject things into the stream. So somebody can be somebody can think they're going to a completely safe website, but unsafe things are being slotted in in between. Right. And if you can do that, another thing you can do is things like keylogging and and getting passwords from people, right? Right. So that sounds pretty bad. And because it's a problem with the actual protocol and not an implementation, it means that every conformant device has this problem. Mm. So it's not like this particular device had a bug. In fact, by definition, if a device does not have this problem, then it is buggy because it's not conforming to the protocol correctly. I see. Maybe I'm using the present tense, but I should say had because they've pretty much all fixed it now. Mm. Which leads me on to the reasons that I don't think people should be too worried necessarily. Firstly, this is a problem in Wi-Fi, which means you need to be physically close to the device that you want to or to the Wi-Fi network that you want to get into, right? Right. So this isn't the sort of thing that some random hacker on the internet can get into your home network. Somebody would actually have to drive around to be near to your house Mm. and hang around outside trying to get into your Wi-Fi network, right? Or if you're in a Starbucks using the shared network, you know, that's that's the more sort of tenable uh, target, I guess. Mm. So there's that mitigating factor. Another thing is that fixes have already been put out for a lot of the things that you might be using. Mm. So I know that all of the... Apple devices, I think, have, have had a fix. Uh, I'm sure the Windows stuff will have as well. I'm not sure about the state of Android. Android is always complicated because I expect Google has put a fix out, but it can often take a long time to get from Google's fix through to you know Samsung or whoever owns the phone and then to an actual update that you install on your phone. Oh, so, I see. But this, this is such a sort of famous big deal that I would hope at least that all the actual phone manufacturers are are going to be pretty quick about putting up fixes but right we'll see i don't really know you do have to patch or fix you have to install the updates on all the clients this is not a thing that if you fix the router then your whole network is safe and that's another area where it's a bit scary because these days there's a lot of people who've got sort of internet of things devices right where you know their light bulbs or their cameras like security cameras in their house or sometimes even the locks on their doors are controlled through a smart device right right and these sort of small purpose-built devices that are connected to the wi-fi and connected to the internet are typically not updated as frequently and are not don't have the same sort of security guarantees that your phone does i see so people with a lot of those devices 
will want to sort of do a bit of an audit of their own devices and make sure they're fully up to date, check whether the manufacturer of their devices put out an update to, to deal with this problem. So if you've got a lot of those devices, I think you, you may want to take a little bit more care mm. because any, any device that is connected to your Wi-Fi is a potential attack vector, right? So, right. But if you don't have m- many of those devices, you've just got a computer and a phone and your router, then you know, if you just make sure you've updated to the latest, whenever you get, I don't know if they've been pushed out yet or not, but whenever a patch or an update gets pushed out, just install it and you should be fine. So Mm. I think a lot of people are getting very worried. Another thing you can do is to plug in via Ethernet instead of Wi-Fi. So if you've got a computer that, you know, you're using at home Mm. and you want to play it safe, then plugging that computer into Ethernet is probably not a bad idea, right? Using a wired connection because that saves you from that potential problem. But if that's not a convenient thing for you to do, then I'm not sure that all-out panic is necessarily required. Mm. Oh, one more tip that I've seen bandied around on the internet that I think is worthwhile is if you have a shared file system, like we've got a drive that's available on the Wi-Fi that we use for backups and things like that, Right. Make sure that's got a password on it so that even if somebody gets into your Wi-Fi, they can't actually get into your files without knowing the password. Mm, I see. So that's, that's the only, those are some little pieces of advice that I've seen. Uh, it is a big deal, I think, for people working in the tech industry and for people with an interest in security, it is big news. And it's not like we can all be totally blasé about it. Mm. But... I don't think the sky is falling in. And I think we can, you know, so long as we just make sure we've updated all our things, I think we can keep calm. And carry on. And indeed, carry on. So that's, that. yeah, I, that's that's all I have to say about the crack thing, I suppose. I know you gave a disclaimer about uh, not being an expert in information technology security, but this is a, a question which um, has always bothered me and, and perhaps other listeners too, which you probably are, qualified to answer because you definitely have much more knowledge about this than most people I'm sure but the safety of public Wi-Fi such as you know you mentioned using your phone on Wi-Fi in Starbucks or right. you know a public library Wi-Fi network or airport Wi-Fi or things like that right specifically you know this is very relevant for people who travel a lot because obviously when you go overseas and you are not wanting to pay expensive roaming charges from your network provider, you know, you often find yourself relying pretty heavily on public Wi-Fi or shop Wi-Fi or things like that. So, I mean, in simple terms, how safe is that? You know, if, if you need to, if you find yourself needing to rely on those services, is that something that you can just use freely? You just attach your phone to the Wi-Fi network and just go for it? Or, or what, what's your feeling there? As with most things... It depends. It depends on who you are and what your threat model is. Threat model is a term that is used a lot in security. But you, when you're thinking about security, it's not a binary thing. It's not like I am secure or I am not secure. A lot of factors weigh in. And the kinds of approaches that you take are going to be different from the sorts of things that Edward Snowden has to do, right? Because right. he's a very well-known public figure now Mm. who there are a number of people who would be very keen to intercept his communications right 
So he's obviously got a big target painted over him in a way that you or I don't. Right. So there is that. Everyone has to decide their own what sorts of threats they are going to account for and right. what they're going to live with. But in the case of public Wi-Fi, as far as I understand it, there are a couple of potential attacks that you need to be wary of. Firstly, I'm pretty sure I'm correct in saying that aside from this WPA2 crack exploit, assuming that everything is updated, right. the communication between you and the router is encrypted. I see. So somebody just sitting in the same cafe as you who doesn't have control of the router in that cafe, say, mm. can't just sniff all the data that you're sending right. over the internet, which I think, you know, once upon a time they could. And, if, I, yeah, you know, depending on the way the network is configured, if it uses WPA2 encryption or something similar. So if it is a secure local connection then you don't need to worry too much about other people sitting in the same cafe and just sniffing over everything you do. Right. But, of course, you don't have any control over the router itself. I see. And there's like a line between you and the local router, and then there's a line between the router and the rest of the internet, right? Right. And the person who has control of the router, the owner of the cafe, or if you want to get into sort of weird spy territory, anybody who's walked in and sort of quickly slipped in a, a USB chip into the router that takes it over or whatever like right anybody who has control over the router can read everything you're doing right right that that is your gateway to the rest of the internet so they can intercept that if they've got control of the router hmm. so that's one thing to consider so if you think you might not trust the owner of the cafe or or if you think that somebody might be following you and you want to be very careful then well that is a one potential point of attack hmm. if you are going on a website that is served with HTTPS, then even if somebody has control of the router, your traffic is encrypted all the way over to the site. Mm. So they still won't be able to read any data going over HTTPS, even if they have control of the router. That's in the case of using a web browser. But what about, I mean, I you know, if, if most people are using dedicated apps to do things like look at Facebook or look at Twitter or right. look at the Station 13 subreddit okay. as most people do or should do. Exactly. Well, Station 13, well, so that depends on the app and you have no real way of knowing I except see. for asking Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or, you know, maybe they've published some security documentation. I don't know. But I see. Reddit's website is served over HTTPS. In fact, all three of those websites are served over HTTPS. So if you're browsing those sites in the browser, right. then you're fine. I see. If you're using the app, that will be using some sort of API, very likely an HTTP-based API these days. Right. And it's up to the developer of the app whether they're doing that over an HTTPS connection. I would be extremely surprised if major services like Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit are not using HTTPS for all their communication. I would be shocked, mm. in fact, I see. if that's the case. So I expect that all of that data is pretty safe. Hmm. I just sort of listed two points of attack, but there are other places as well. You can, the DNS, for example, when you go to a website, you're using a name for that website, right? Like facebook.com. Right. But that's not, the website actually has a location. It is stored on a server somewhere physically. Right. And that location is identified by an IP address. And DNS is the name of the service 
that maps the domain name like facebook.com or station13.fm to a particular IP address. Right. If something can get in and muck about with the DNS, and again, if somebody's got access to the router, they can do this. If they can tell your computer or your phone or whatever that that facebook.com is not over here, actually it's over here, where over here is their own server Mm. that does naughty things and then maybe forwards all the traffic to Facebook to get you the actual answer you wanted. If they can do that, then that's another attack, right? And DNS is fairly easy. DNS is not a very secure system. So if you've managed to insert yourself anywhere in the pipeline between, you know, the device, your phone and, and the world, then you can do tricky things with that. And there are, you know, there are attempts to deal with this. HTTPS websites have to serve a certificate which proves their authenticity. And if your computer has been to that website before, then it can look at the certificate when it goes to connect and say, well, hang on, this certificate has changed since last time I connected. So there might be something funny going on. And that's when you see, like, mm. if you're looking in the browser, you'll get a message coming up saying, warning, this might be insecure. You know, this, this certificate's different, whatever. I see. Mm. With an app, again, no guarantees. It all depends on how the developer of the app decides to handle that case. Mm. So it's difficult to know. This conversation is taking me back to a scene in uh, Terminator 2 when uh, (laughs) Edward Furlong... I can't remember the name of Edward Furlong's character. What was he called again? I can't remember. The kid? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember either. But you're talking about the dog, right? No, I'm talking about. Oh, okay. I'm talking about the scene. I'm thinking of the scene where he goes up to the cash ATM, the 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 bank ATM, and plugs in a card with a wire coming out of it, uh, yeah, attached yeah. to a, <laughs> a a small little like an Atari PDA. Right. And then you know, you you watch on the screen like all these numbers kind of crunching down until it finds like a, a pin number or something, and then he he punches it in and gets some cash out and. You know, looks at his friend and he says, "Easy money." Right. You know, <laughs> right. That's like the first scene he's in, right? That's your yeah. I think that's right. Character. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Actually, uh, one of my best friends in high school and uh, still now, he uh, actually went and got one of those Atari PDAs just because he thought it would be cool to, uh, you know, have the same devices that uh, that he used in the movie <laughs> to to get cash out of an ATM. Right. Of course, you know, getting cash work. out of an ATM it doesn't work <laughs> like that. No. And it's a good thing too, but... Uh, Did you know Terminator 2 is... They're going to be replaying it at cinemas because it's like the anniversary or something. It's the 25-year anniversary. So they're, I'm not sure in Sweden, but in America, they're going to be playing the original Terminator 2. Annoyingly, they've remixed it for 3D. So oh, really? You can, you can watch it with 3D glasses, but forget about that. They're also doing it in some cinemas. They're doing it not in 3D. So you can go and see Terminator 2 at the cinema. Oh, that's... Which sounds great and I really want to do. I can't remember when it's on. I think mm. maybe I've already missed it. I saw the, the trailer for it ages ago, but it looks great. So I'd like to do that. Yes. See, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I... Okay, like About going to see Terminator 2 at the cinema? No, I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, there, there are some movies... Okay, we're talking science fiction here, and there are some right. science fiction movies that definitely, definitely benefit from the big screen, the big sound, the the whole yeah. cinematic experience. For example, you know, the obvious obvious choice there is Star Wars. Right. The the other obvious choice is uh, two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. Okay. The other obvious choice is the original Blade Runner. Yep. You know, any of these 
movies are all about the ambience and you know the that that grand scale of space or the the Millennium Falcon uh, flying through the asteroids and you know the or in Blade Runner where you've got the that um, the, the the wonderful music of Vangelis playing with that hazy hazy red yeah. you know super yeah. future dystopia kind of uh, vista of the city there or you know the 2001 Space Odyssey obviously you know that the whole the whole movie um, uh, obviously you know it's an absolute classic of science fiction right. and and the grandeur of that movie is definitely enhanced by a big screen and a big sound system right now Terminator Two to me the appeal of Terminator Terminator Two is on the same par as the appeal of Aliens, I guess. Right. It's a, I mean, they're both yeah, by the yeah, same director. Big, big movies and right, right. It, they're, they're kind of more gritty, more. Uh, I mean, they are action movies. Right. Uh, action science fiction right. movies, but to me, you know, I, I would enjoy Terminator Two on a small screen as much as I would on the big screen. So to hear that, you know, oh, they're going to be showing it at the cinema again, to me, it's sort of well. You know, I, 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 I don't know. Personally, I don't know that I would enjoy it that much more on a big screen versus on, on the small screen. I don't know. I'm, I'm keen to see it. It's, I mean, Terminator 2 has got a great soundtrack as well. True, and true. It's a classic. I don't know. All of the movies you listed, I have not seen on the big screen. Oh, really? I've, not, I've only seen them on the small screen. I mean, I was too young for all of them. But Blade Runner, Star Wars, 2001, certainly. But you've never... Well, that's interesting because uh, Star Wars, I, I was... Um, also too young, but uh, when I was a teenager, I think they had a like a special rerunning of the the three classic movies in the cinema. So I went to see it, mm-hmm. and yes, it's uh, just as incredible as uh, everybody says it is. You know those opening scenes when the the uh, star destroyers, you know, uh, fly in over the camera. Right. Yeah, the, they and it's really, 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 really big on the big screen just as incredible as as you would imagine it would be but uh oh that's interesting so you've never yeah. you never had that opportunity so i've never seen i've never seen any of them i haven't seen terminator 2 on the big screen either so i'm not in a very good position to, to oh, judge okay. the relative merits of any of them what i have seen i've actually been to the cinema twice in the last two weeks which is i hardly ever get to go to the cinema these days but yeah since we last spoke uh i've been twice and one of the films that i went and saw was the new blade runner film right now hold on hold up here Please, no spoilers. No. So I, I don't want to spend very much time talking about the new Blade Runner film because uh, A, you haven't seen it yet. And B, neither has anybody else. Well, a lot of people haven't <laughs> seen it yet. And so, right. you know, and I spent the last week waiting to listen to A-Town because they did a Blade Runner podcast. And obviously I couldn't listen to it because I hadn't seen the movie yet. Oh, okay. It was very good. I'll say that much. Blade Runner was very good. Okay. Okay. That, that's, that's enough. It's very good. You should see it. And it's and you should see it at the big screen because it is definitely one of these films that benefits from the big screen. Just just one more one more question. One more question. Yeah. Is the music good? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Very good. That is all. Yeah. 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 So it's very good music. The atmosphere is brilliant, and they've definitely sort of taken so much from the original film and sort of brought it alive again. So it's an amazing achievement. I mm. think very very good. Okay. Anyway, the other movie. That aside, the other movie that I saw is fairly safe in terms of spoilers because it's a biographical movie about Vincent van Gogh. Oh, okay. And it's not a major spoiler to say he cuts off his ear. Mm. <laughs> right. 
Uh, but the the interesting thing about this movie, it's an animated movie. Okay. Where every frame is an oil painting. Wow. It created an entire one and a half hour long animated movie. I think it was 65,000 frames. Wow. And every frame is an actual oil painting. Some of the frames... Oh, hold on. It's, it's, actually, it's actually oil painting. Yes. They had a team of 100 artists who painted these frames. How long did it take? A long time, I imagine. It's a joint Polish-UK production, and it was originally funded through Kickstarter and then through you know various other funding for the arts and things. Right. And not every frame is an individual oil painting. Mm. For some sequences, they painted the first frame and then they shot it and then they... Because oil, you can paint on top of itself, right? So you can... Right. They modified the first frame oh. by painting on it some more and then took another shot and then did that. That's clever. So you can see for some sequences... They've, <laughs> you can see for some, it's quite interesting. For some of them, the background is very static because they're not repainting that every frame. Right. And then they've got somebody walking along and you can see them walking and you can kind of see a little bit of smudging behind where they walked as they repaint the background back in from right. where they used to be. Right. Uh, but it's obviously an amazing artistic achievement. Just just an amazing piece of work from the point of, of the medium, right? Right. Of taking animation but doing it not with, I don't know if they used cell techniques as well. Like, I don't know if some of these oil paintings were on transparent sheets that they placed on top of other oil paintings I mean, and that, things that, like that. It's amazing because I've just done a quick calculation. If the if the movie was, for example, 120 minutes long yep. and, it, and it runs at 24 frames per second, right. that, that's on the order of... 172,800 frames. Right. Well, I think I've got the Wikipedia. I think it's 65,000 frames. Okay, I see. It's 65,000 frames. The film is 91 minutes. Okay, right. So it's one and a half hours, so it's shorter than you said. Right. And I'm not sure what the frame rate is, but I don't think they necessarily need to do it at 24. Right. So whatever it is, it's 65,000 frames, and there was a team of 115 painters. So you could work out how many frames it is per painter mm. it's a few amazing and uh yeah the music is by clint mansell who did the music for requiem for a dream and mm. some other things i just recognized his name from requiem for a dream but i think he's done lots of big famous things he he did oh he did ghost in the shell as well and um it's got some some fairly famous british names in it it's got jerome flynn mm -hmm. who i always think of robson and jerome the sort of weird 90s pop album that <laughs> he did but he's more famous these days for playing Bronn in game of thrones right uh, and it's got helen mccrory who is in a lot of things she was in she was in the harry potter films she's in peaky blinders so yeah she's she's in a lot of things had a couple of other people i recognized but i can't remember mm. and uh just just fascinating sort of just a really interesting new thing to see yeah in terms of the actual story and the acting it's it follows this guy who's not anybody particularly famous but somebody who i think grew up in the same town as vincent or, or lived in a town where vincent van gogh lived right and it takes place after he's committed suicide right after van gogh has committed suicide okay and he's got this letter that he wanted delivered to his brother and he wrote a huge number of letters in his life so 
the postman from the town mm. that he was living in kind of knew him personally because he just always went and picked up all these letters. Mm. And so the postman feels very sad that he's died and gives this letter to his son to deliver. And then his son goes off and goes down to Paris and tries to find this brother. Turns out the brother has also died. And so then he tries to find out more about Van Gogh's death and he goes to the village that he was in when he killed himself. Right. And talks to various people in that village. And all the scenes are inspired by actual Van Gogh paintings. Mm. So they've kind of taken a painting and then constructed a character out of the subject of that painting mm. and had those characters kind of played by actors. And they've they've clearly made their, you know, it's all hand-painted, but it must be painted based on a recording that they shot with the actual actors because they're very, they've got all the facial expressions and I things see. that that actor would make. Right. So the dialogue was, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure about the writing. I don't think that's the main thing they were trying to do with it, I guess. I see. Uh, but sometimes it let the rest of the project down a little bit. Mm. And I think sometimes the acting for the more minor characters, they, pay, they must have paid so much on the, you know, famous names right. and on the 115 artists to paint everything. <laughs> but some some of the minor characters, I found their acting a little bit off sometimes. But as a sort of interesting thing to go and see, yeah, you know, fascinating yeah. and really interesting to see how animation works in this very different medium. Yeah, actually, um, that reminds me of, this is kind of a segue, but it, it, it's actually also quite relevant. Right. I rarely watch movies that are not science fiction just because, well, no reason other than, you know, that's really what I'm interested in. and uh, For the same reason you don't read any books that aren't the Silmarillion. <laughs> well, that, there's slightly different there, that, <laughs> the reason for that. But anyway, listeners can go back to uh, Station 13 episode, uh, whatever it was, to find out more about that. But anyway, Link in the, the favourite movie for myself of all time, I'm going to ask you this in a moment too, but top three movies, I would say the first one is the original Tron movie. Second for me would probably be 2001 A Space Odyssey and third would probably be either Aliens or Star Wars A New Hope. But anyway, Tron, the original movie, had a similar, very, very long-winded, very laborious process. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how it was actually made. I think I may have come across sort of stories about it before, but I can't remember. Yeah, so actually Tron is a mixture of three types of footage. It's a mixture of regular live action footage mm. it's a mixture of hand painted animated cell footage right and it's a mixture of computer graphics footage right for the first time actually like pure computer graphics footage right not only uh, the reason that i love uh, the original tron movie so much is on all counts it's utterly brilliant you know the the storyline is for its time 1984 I believe, was incredibly forward-thinking as far as predicting, you know, the, the modern world of computer networks and right. the way that that would work. And also in within those computer networks, you know, you have the, the large evil, what would you call it, you know, the, the mega corporation kind of uh, presence along with so, – so the storyline is extremely innovative and uh, extremely thought-provoking mm. and very, very relevant even today. Mm. The – Production techniques, not only did it have, you know, the first examples of purely computer-generated graphics in the movie, mm. but the scenes where they're actually inside on the grid, so to speak, inside the, the computer world, I guess you could call it in simplistic terms, are actually all done by hand-painted cell animations. So 
they took all of the frames of the actors doing their thing right. and actually hand-painted on all of the glow that you see. Oh, right. They didn't hand-paint hand paint on the glow literally, but they actually made masks over every individual frame that would only show through the lines on their suits and the lines in the backgrounds and things like that and wow. then rear-projected them so that the light is actually shining through the mask and then take a picture of that and that is your finished frame. Right. And they did that for every single frame. Jeez. Just amazing. So the production side of it, the computer graphics, and then the 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 task of actually doing that, you know, just the clarity of vision. Mm. This is what we're going for and this is what we're going to achieve, even though the road to get to that is so long. On on that regard, it's it's utterly brilliant as well. Mm. And then there's the music written by Wendy Carlos. Wendy Carlos, uh, for those who don't know, is one of these um, famous synthesizer artists from the 70s who uh, made her name for uh, a lot of synthesized classical music. And uh, in the case of Tron, it was sort of synthesized orchestral music right. together with some really choice early 80s uh, pop rock as well, one of the more notable tunes being from Journey. <laughs> On every count, you know, Tron, it's just, uh, and, and just to watch it, yeah. whether you're a child or an adult, you know, it's just got something for everybody to enjoy. I absolutely love it. It just never gets old. So that's definitely my number one science fiction movie. So right. what about you? Uh, for movies in general. Let's, uh, I know that you have a much more broader palette of interests for movies than I do, but let just for the, the, the sake of this conversation, let's limit it to science fiction. Oh, science fiction makes it a bit more difficult because I don't think I've got as deep an understanding of science fiction as you. I'm trying to think what science fiction movies I've ever seen. I obviously love Aliens, the whole Alien series, mm. and 2001, which I only saw relatively recently. I only saw 2001, you know, a couple few years ago. Oh, really? What else is there? Uh, Star Wars, obviously, which is great, and Blade Runner. What other science fiction movies are there? I don't know. I don't. It's hard to talk about a favorite when there's like... <laughs> You know, like Star Wars, Aliens, and Blade Runner. Oh, well done. <laughs> I'm, yeah. think, I'm sure if I'd sort of, maybe if I'd thought a bit more in advance, I'd, I'd have a better answer, but I'm not really sure. I can't think off the top of my head. What What are the science fiction? Just as a, a slight detour on this point, what did you, what was your impression of 2001 and why did you think it was good? I want to see 2001 again. 2001 is obviously amazing for a lot of reasons. As a, as a piece of cinematography, as an example of the art as it stood at that time, it's, mm. it's amazing. It, it does things that have still sort of right. not been repeated with technology that is very basic compared to ours. As a cultural st touchstone, it's also obviously very important. I mean, right. I only saw 2001 a, a couple of years ago, but I still knew the sort of key phrases of uh, i'm sorry dave i can't do that and things like that mm. yeah so but it, it does go a bit weird at the end 2001 <laughs> yeah it's another example like tron you know whether the its production is just leaves you speechless the skill in uh because there's no special effects in that that's all real yeah so to speak right you know right like for example um this is kind of a production spoiler so if you're don't like to know how special effects are done, then switch off now. But uh, there's a scene in, in 2001 where one of the characters is riding a shuttle to a an orbiting 
station for a meeting at the start and he falls asleep and there's a pen floating through spa- floating through the because there's no gravity inside right, uh, right. The, the shuttle but there's a pen floating do you, and the stewardess comes through with these kinds of magnetic boots keeping her down to the floor right and plucks the pen out of the air and gives it back to the man right have um do you know how that's done do you want to know how that's done sure yeah it's brilliant it's so simple. It, to look at, you just think, wow, the pen's just floating in mid-space because there's no gravity. That's cool. Right, right. It's so simple. It's basically a clear piece of perspex right. and the pen is attached to it. And they basically have people off camera who are holding that piece of perspex and slowly rotating it in front of the camera. <laughs> and then the, the lady, the actress comes up and basically plucks it off the perspex. Right, right. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. It's so simple. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, just the one thing that I want to say about 2001 is that I think it was the first time I had seen a science fiction movie, and I watch a lot of science fiction movies, uh, well, I used to. Um, the first time I'd seen one where I realized to the extent to which science fiction movies have become action movies, because right. it's not really an action movie. Right, no, 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 it's, an, it's a movie about ideas. Right, right exactly, and... You know, just the whole way it starts where you've got that. The way it starts and the way it ends is incredible. You know, you've got that yeah. uh, some very, very sophisticated, very cere- cerebral 20th century atonal music for several minutes at the start with a black screen Right, is is fantastic. And it just, I've never seen that done since. You know, the, <laughs> there is action obviously in it and there's a lot of tension in it, mm. but it's definitely not an action movie the way that, uh, science fiction movies since I guess since the 80s right. have all become you know nowadays you don't really see science fiction movies that often that are not purely you know if you, if you just change the context from the future to something the past or the present there's basically just uh, an interchangeable action movie right. with a different context behind it yeah I think Interstellar was trying to be a bit more in that mold yeah possibly Interstellar I, I guess and also, The Martian is relatively uh, yeah. It's not an action movie in the sense that you know a lot of Ridley Scott's recent movies are right. But uh, yeah, I suppose The Martian and Interstellar would qualify sort of in that direction. Yeah, The Martian is based on a book that has a real sort of sense of humor about it as well. Right, so I think that not really on the extent to which um, two thousand and one is a, a really an, an intellectual journey. Right, like I think The Martian and Interstellar are not action movies. Right, but they're not, for want of a better word, artsy in the same way that two thousand and one is. Right, right, right. So not quite so cerebral mm. in in their nature. Speaking of space and all that, actually, did you see the neuron star collision that? that they reported a couple of days ago. I did not. I didn't. Tell me about that. It's So again, we've gone from security, which I'm a, a rank amateur at, to astronomy, which I literally know almost nothing about. But it's okay. common theme on this podcast, we've talked about space a few times, despite not knowing anything about it. So two neutron stars have collided. They obviously collided many tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's cool. (laughs) But we've just seen it. And they're not sure yet whether the result of that collision is a sort of dead neutron star or whether it's a black hole. They think it's almost certainly a black hole. Right. Which means this will be the first time we've seen a black hole being formed, Mm. I think, or at least formed from two neutron stars. And the other interesting thing about this is confirmed a couple of theories 
we've known that this is sort of a likely thing that happens for a long time, but this is the first time we've been able to actually observe it. And one of the theories that it's confirmed is that when they collided, they shot out a huge amount of heavy metals of gold and platinum and things like that. And opeth. And <laughs> they, sh they shot out a lot of gold and, and platinum. And the theory is that most, if not all, of the gold and platinum in the universe, and therefore on Earth, is the result of neutron star collisions. Mm. That's the only thing that we've observed that has enough energy to form these elements. And so it's just a fascinating thing to think that the, you know, the ring on your finger, if you're wearing a wedding band, if you've got a gold or a platinum wedding band, mm. that is literally, that was shot out from two stars joining together. I mean, it sounds all sort of romantic, but it's, that is literally where it came from. Yeah. And I just think that's fascinating. I mean, that that is fascinating. But to me, look, sorry, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, two neutron stars colliding, that's really amazing. But the fact that we know about this event now that happened so long ago because the light that we get from the night sky, from the starry sky is so ancient. Yeah. And the fact that we look up and we're looking at the past. Sorry, but to me... That I said it before, I know, but that, to me, that still that is awesome. Awesome in the true sense sense of the word, right? That is awe inspiring. Looking up at the sky at night and seeing the past. I mean, I I could just wonder about that for ages and ages. I, so I was talking about this a, a little while ago with my wife, as we our typical after dinner conversation is about the nature of space in the universe. Um, and I was thinking, so do you know what the earliest supernova that that we have record of is no it's called the sn185 supernova it's a very very romantic name isn't it and well yes they don't have very romantic names supernovas but you know supernova is the, the birth of a star it's a, a very big astronomical event and the first one that we have recorded is sn185 which was observed probably in around ad 185 that's where it gets the name from i see so Nearly 2,000 years ago, it was definitely observed and written about by Chinese astronomers. Right. And it was also, it's thought that it was probably observed by the Romans as well. Mm. But we don't have actual written record of that. And I was thinking, so that's, that's a much more sort of primitive society than ours, right? 2,000 years ago. It's obviously fairly advanced in that they can look at this and understand that it's even a, a thing worthy of note, right? Right. But when you compare it to where we are now and where we're using these amazing instruments to detect these neutron star collisions and things like that, and obviously ties in with my recent interest in, in the classics and in ancient Greek and all of that, but mm. it's a, a much earlier society and they've seen, they've observed this thing. And now we are observing sort of things that have happened later as well. Hmm. But the the thing that got me thinking is that that happened like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. And over the course of that time, over the course of the time that the light from that supernova happening or from this collision happening, that light has, has progressed over however many tens or hundreds of thousands of light years. Mm. In fact, I can see SN185 was 9,100 light years away, mm. right? So 
over almost 10,000 years, that event has been replayed at positions everywhere between here and there. Mm. And I tend to fall on the side that there's almost certainly some other life in the universe, right? Because there's just so many planets, there's right. so many stars, there's just the probabilities just seem to make it inevitable to me, right? Right, right. So over the course of that 10,000 years, different civilizations at different periods in their history must be seeing this same event mm. and wondering what it means and learning about their place in the universe from it. And that becomes part of their written record. Mm. And I just think that whole thing is really amazing. Like this neutron star collision that we've just seen, we're seeing it where we are now. Right in terms of our technology tree, if you like. And something in between here and there, they might be more or less advanced than us. Right. And they may have seen the same thing and will understand it in a different way. And we're all puzzling over the same thing. Mm. But we're puzzling over it at very different times because we are seeing the light at very different times. Right. And it all, it forms a building block for civilization for, and for our understanding of the universe. We will use this in the future mm. as the basis of some other bit of progress that we make. Right. And all the other sort of civilizations between here and there and the civilizations that are going to see it from now on, now that the light has gone past us right. and is still continuing on to the end of the universe, if such a thing exists. Right. The whole thing is just amazing and, and awe-inspiring. And I think... I just love the idea of thinking about these different cultures at different periods in their history, seeing this thing and mm. scratching their heads over it. It's almost like a Star Trek Next Generation episode in the making here, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I don't know. To me, the Star Trek thing where you can go beyond light speed and so we could go from here to one of these other civilizations and compare how we see this thing to how they see it. That kind of breaks some of the magic of it for me, I think. Okay, it's not uh, it's not P Picard and his uh, hot Earl Grey. No. Riker punching aliens, doing the James T. Kirk alien punch. No, I've got no problem with Star Trek. I just don't find thinking of these specific real world things in terms of Star Trek to <laughs> add anything to, <laughs> to their brilliance right but anyway uh, yeah no i just thought that that whole thing was amazing and i think it's really interesting to see how we the heavens and astronomy have been hugely important parts of our various civilizations the egyptians obviously assigned a huge amount of importance to them mm. and the chinese made very detailed measurements of them and recorded all that and now here we are sort of internationally collaborating to try and learn more about these things and you know when they there are people who were looking out for these neutron star collisions that had uh, computer systems that would look out for them and then send them like a text when it looked like one was about to happen right and so they would know and they could rush in and just all point their telescopes in that direction so people all around the world just pointing their telescopes at this thing to get a look at it right and comparing results and and the whole thing is just amazing